This episode is brought to you by LiveUp.com, where taking live online classes has never been easier. Live is a community-based platform that gives people the opportunity to learn new skills and abilities through the form of live online classes, pre-recorded videos, and one-on-one lessons. We aim to give everyone a platform to easily teach and learn various skills and subjects. If there's a new skill you've been wanting to pick up, or if you'd like to monetize a skill you have, be sure to check it out at liveup.com, spelled L-Y-V-E-U-P.com. Our next partner has a product I use every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I wanted a simple all-in-one solution as opposed to the ever-changing variety of supplements I have been taking for as long as I can remember. Sometimes up to three ramekins a day full of pills and powders trying to find the right formula for peak performance. Now that I've been taking Athletic Greens for a few months, I love it and I will never go back. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food, sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I take one scoop in the morning on an empty stomach and an additional one in the evening when I'm feeling run down. I've seen such a difference in my own performance that I recently ordered additional AG1 for the rest of my family to use. It costs you less than $3 a day, you're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit, and supports better sleep quality and recovery, in addition to mental clarity and alertness. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com contacts. Again, this is athleticgreens.com contacts to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Welcome to the Contacts Coaching Podcast, dedicated to bringing you practical ideas from coaches, sharing what they have learned throughout their career. The show is designed to serve as a digital database of mentorship from a wide network of coaches whose innovative, reflective, and diverse knowledge may offer ideas to enhance your experience. In addition to sports-specific expertise, each episode also dives into the ways in which culture, strategy, tactics can cross from one discipline to another i'm your host justin welcome back to the contacts coaching podcast we are joined today by two-time national championship coach lars tiffany of the university of virginia lacrosse and one of my former high school coaches and teachers excited to have him here that was generations ago coach thanks for joining us today justin Generations is an understatement. It's, it's been over three decades since I've worked at Pebble Beach, California, but it's great to see you. Absolutely. That is accurate. I always am reminded how old I am because Father Time is undefeated and my body's <laughs> falling apart. So uh, let's dive in, Coach. If you don't mind, can you take us through the journey? How did you end up coaching at the University of Virginia? But let's go back to the beginning. How did you end up coaching at all? What was the process sure. for that? Sure. This 
fortunate happenstance occurrences, Brad, Tiffany, my father, and my mother, Faith, buy a ranch in Lafayette, New York in the late 60s. And what I mean by fortunate, the Lafayette is tangent to the Onondaga Nation. The Onondaga Nation is one of the six tribes of the Haudenosaunee, also known as the Iroquois, the Confederacy. I therefore was allowed to grow up with Native Americans. I went to school with them, played sports with them, sleepovers, best friends. And we played all the sports. We played football and basketball. I even played baseball. But lacrosse in the spring was different. And when I'm a young boy, I don't know that. I don't know why. But there's a lot more of emotion. And we're putting on the war paint. We got our green and gold war paint all over our face before lacrosse games. And, and we're war whooping. We run around the field, around the opponent. And we probably won half the games just doing that in the warmups. And I just didn't understand until I got later how sacred the game of lacrosse is to the Native American people and certainly to my friends, the Onondagas. Uh, you talk about the game of lacrosse being probably the only sport that's truly spiritual. It truly has a religious background. You know, it's funny to hear SEC footballs are like religion. Lacrosse really is a part of the religion, appeasing the creator, having the reciprocal respect and relationship with nature as the Aboriginals first game of lacrosse was the winged animals versus land animals. And you play with wood, the energy from the wood. It's something that I was exposed to early on. And so for me, lacrosse was more than just a game because of my uniqueness of where I grew up and the willingness of my native friends to share with me. Mm -hmm. And so here's this game that means more and because of what it does for the people and appeasing the creator that I am now allowed to not only play, but then I get to go to California. It helps me get a job in Pebble Beach, California at the Robert Louis Stevenson School. And I get to coach football under Jeff Young and these amazing people. I met Bob Anderson, who's still like one of my closest friends today. He was a fellow teacher, army ranger, extraordinary man. And it's allowed me to take all these incredible steps in my life along the way, and to, whether it's to then the Lemoyne College, et cetera, et cetera, back to my alma mater. I got to be the head coach of Brown for 10 years, which was really my dream. That was my goal, my whole objective. And, and then one of those offers you can't refuse when the tradition and the history and the greatness of UVA comes along and offers me a position. And both my assistants, Kip Turner and Sean Kerwin, said they'd come with me. I said, we're heading to Charlottesville. Took my daughter, who was already named Charlotte, and my wife, Tara, and we headed to Charlottesville. And here we are. And if I could peel back the layer a little bit, since you brought up this idea of the sacredness of the game of lacrosse, it is often referred to here, especially the tradition that Stevenson lacrosse has dating back to before your era, but it's re often referred to as a medicine game, as the creator's game. Can you dig in a little bit more to that for people who listen to the show that don't understand lacrosse and why people call it a medicine game? I'm really glad you asked about that, Justin. It's, uh, it depends on interpretation. There's 574 tribes on this continent. Some are very small. You would never have heard of them. Not all of them played lacrosse, but it was very prevalent in Northeast and still is today with the, the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee, but it did spread throughout the Midwest and even out in parts of some tribes out West. The literal translation for the game in the native tongue varies as much as any other languages would amongst different tribes and different peoples around this world. So what I mean by that is if you talk to the Onondaga people and you translate the word lacrosse in the Onondaga language, it literally means they bump hips. Other tribes, it could mean something more what a warrior would experience, little brother of war, for example. 
is some interpretations. Medicine game is certainly another one. Creator's game, it's been, the game has been referred to. I don't think that translates out of a language, but, and so it's really the respect for the game of lacrosse that you hear through the words. And we all know how valuable words are and how important words are. And so I grew up with the Onondaga people and I learned this game through more so as a relationship with nature, a relationship with each other. Whereas maybe if you grew up somewhere else where the translation is little brother of war, it might be more about the development of boys to becoming men. And then the, for a thousand years until a couple of generations ago, that meant becoming a warrior to defend your tribe, to acquire more territory, to defeat the enemy, whether that was life or death or not. And so I've taken that today with me as a coach and I'm careful not to bring spirituality too much in. The Supreme Court has to make rulings when too much religion is brought into, prayer in the locker room, prayer on the football field, the most recent case. But I do wanna share with my men that this is important to me. And there is a sacredness of the game of lacrosse that you just don't have with other sports because of the people who gave us this game. It's the truest, game that's truly North American. That's the first North American sport. And so for me, the value of understanding that my job is to develop difference makers and leaders out of men, the vehicle lacrosse is what we do that with. The game of lacrosse was allowed, was again, as we talked about the warrior, develop the brave, develop the warrior, develop the soldier of the tribe, essentially. We don't have to do that. We haven't signed up to serve in the military. We're fortunate that others have, such as Bob Anderson, but we have taken a route where now as a leader, I want to make better men for others, men who are willing to love and to be loved and have an altruistic point to attack on this planet. Yeah, I love that answer and that share because it helps ground even further my understanding when those terms are shared. And obviously, Cooper, who's our head coach, shares office space with me and we talk a lot about the transferability of skill sets, but I haven't seen that sacredness, so to speak, in other sports in the way it is in lacrosse. So when you left here and went to the next step and then ultimately became the head coach at Brown, what I often ask on this is trying to drill down into the difference between being an assistant and being a head coach and what the challenges are and what you are prepared for, or you're not prepared for. And so I'm often curious if you can think back that far, when you moved over the proverbial 18 inches, what did you realize that you needed to figure out that you weren't quite aware of until you sat in that chair? Sure. There's the fundamental difference that I'm sure you've heard if you ask other guests this question. You go from being a guy who makes suggestions to a guy who makes decisions. Yep. And, and it's really easy to be critical of others. And when your suggestion isn't accepted, but the decision was wrong, oh boy, you're empowered, aren't you? I told him not to do that. But it's so different when you're on the other side. Like Someone's got to make a decision around here and you're looking around going, okay, I guess it's me. And, and I think also... Just understanding that, depending on your personality, some of us want to be appreciated. Some of us want to be liked. It's easier as an assistant coach to have a lot of friends and have a lot of people, oh, good buddies, go get a beer with, go hang out, talk X's and O's, hang out, sit at the recruiting events, whatever. As a head coach, if everybody likes you, you're not doing your job. You're not doing your job right. Yep. You're not beating the pants off of some of your opponents. You're not stealing recruits. You're not doing what's best for your program. 
And along the way, if somebody is not best for your program, they might be in your program, but you've got to release them because their decision-making behavior doesn't fit the culture you're creating, whether it's with drugs or improper use of alcohol or just language or not treating others fairly or just not giving the effort that they need to be a great teammate. And then outside your locker room, your enemy, your competition, if you're acquiescing and trying to be nice to everybody, you're not doing your job. And so you just got to recognize you got to get that thicker skin when you become a head coach. What else I learned? And again, I've mentioned him names twice. And now here's a third time, Bob Anderson. When I became a head coach 18 years ago, there was a couple of people and Bob being one of them who sort of, you know, I'm enjoying the, the ticker tape parade, all the congratulations, pats on the back. Yeah, yeah, this is great. This is great. A couple of guys like Bob shook me like, you know what this means? You have an opportunity to really affect change. You have a chance to be a difference maker. Because you're a head coach, people will put you on a pedestal for 10 to 15 minutes. If you're fake, if there's no true substance behind you, it'll come out in the wash. We'll pass you by. We'll forget about you. We'll move on to the next guy who just became a head coach. You have an opportunity to affect young people's lives. You have an opportunity to send out a message, to share with the world what's important, strong values, things that are critical to you. And again, for me, a lot of it is where I grew up with the Native Americans of the Onondagas. So it's a, that was a really important moment to really understand that, hey, look, you don't just go from being an assistant coach, worrying about recruiting and X's and O's completely to being a head coach, worrying about recruiting and X's and O's. There's so much more at play here that you can make a huge impact on other people's lives. Yeah, we've been talking about that lately in regards to how your job shifts when you move over and what percentage is no longer coaching the game, but all of the other things that come with it. And we jokingly with my buddy landed on a, it's about 85% of non basketball stuff I do and about 15% coaching basketball. And I'm sure it's similar for you in regards to the administrative work and other things that come along with being the leader. But was there anything definitive that you can point to now in hindsight when you jumped from Brown to UVA that was different that you had not a do-over, but Hey, I have a new opportunity to be the head coach for the first time again at a school. Are there things that you can look at now and stand out and go, Whoa, huh, I did this better the second time than I did the first time. I still didn't quite get this piece. Are there things like that that jump out for you? There's an obvious one, and it's not one that I had to think about too hard. But let me first say that diving into being a head coach where it does become 15 or 20% is the X's and O's. It actually might be the better balance. And what I mean by that is I've gotten older, the relationships we create with our people. And most of our men, but there's certainly women who help support our team and our efforts. But the relationship we make with our people, I have really come to realize are so much more critical than having all my emails opened and checked off and attended to, and having watched an extra couple game films of the upcoming North Carolina opponent, that those relationships, and I think about Greg Popovich and the success, the incredible success he had with the San Antonio Spurs. And it's just, and what I've learned is he took care of his people. He took care of his men. He gave a little bit of attention to the X's and O's and they were good at good enough at it, but he really cared about his people. A transition to the second part of your question. When I arrived at UVA, there were days I felt like I'd never been a head coach before. 
And I'd been a head coach for 10 years at Brown and for a couple at Stony Brook. And what I mean by that was I was following in the footsteps of one of the greatest people who's ever coached this game, who's ever been a coach, Tom Starja. Yes, he had his national championships, but he also built some really strong relationships. Like I think about with Greg Popovich, he really takes care of his people. Unfortunately, the last couple of years of Dom's tenure didn't have the locker room anymore. The locker room, and I mean by that, was a bit septic. There was a, there was things that weren't going right. There was too much improper use of alcohol. There was things that had to change. There was some drug use usage going on. And so I hadn't really had to attend to it this much before I got to UVA. And so Kip, Sean, and I, we spent about nine to 10 months assessing, taking a temperature of the program. And it wasn't until year one finally ended that we said, okay, now we attack. We pro- maybe we should have attacked sooner, become a, a, an agent of change right away. But we're coming from Brown, an incredible academic institution with a good athletic department to UVA with an incredible athletic department and a strong academic reputation, who were we to come in and say, hey, we need this and this. And all of a sudden we had sports psychologists here. We got nutritionists here. There's three athletic trainers at practice instead of a half a person who's doing one field and the other field. And the support is incredible here. So we wanted to assess it. What we really were assessing was the culture. And so I tell you what we do today with UVA weekly, in terms of cultural development, in terms of reading books, my younger self would kick my current butt <laughs> and just say, what are you talking about? What's all this love word with other right. men? Right. This is, what do you mean you're reading books on Thursdays when you got a game on Saturday? You should be working on your shooting or your man up. And we spend a half hour on cultural Thursdays and there is no going back because I'm convinced if we hadn't done what we started year two, yep. we wouldn't have those two national championships and we wouldn't have this really more, and maybe more importantly, the strong, united, real relationships of men caring for other men. Love it. And I would ask, what's the best thing you do that has the largest ripple effect on your culture? But since you just mentioned this Thursday piece, can you elaborate on that a little bit and share what that looks like? Sure. I'd love to. So the first year we did it, year two and our tenure down here, we had a couple different ideas. So we spent the summer. All right. What do we, fellas, what do we do? What do we do here? I got the captains and got the coaches. And one of the ideas we came up with, maybe we could use uh, books. Maybe we could read books, focus on certain chapters, highlight the key points and relate them back to Virginia lacrosse, which is a natural thing to do. And so we started doing this cultural day of the week. And it's, it's been established to be a cultural Thursday. So the first book was Legacy by James Kerr. One word chapters, 15 chapters, really tailor-made for the corporate executive who's trying to enhance or improve his culture or her culture. And it's built for corporate leadership. And it's fairly simple, but easy. Like, okay, fellas, this week, we're going to do chapter eight. It talks about pressure. That's the chapter title. Could be the character chapter, whatever it is. And so our men, they have to read that chapter, get caught up on it. And uh, one family, we have families, we break up the team into families. It's a first year, a second year, a third year, and a fourth year. Thomas Jefferson and UVA decided to call freshmen, sophomore, juniors, and seniors. It's four guys in a family, and you meet with your family. And so on Cultural Thursday, one family is going to guide the conversation. The first five or six minutes, each family gets together, some time to connect and see the points that resonated with each other. And then that first family starts the presentation. The other families chime in. 30, 35 minutes go by with a lot of great points always connecting it back to UVA lacrosse, how we can improve or highlighting the strengths or highlighting weaknesses. And it's, it's incredible. It feels like those things. I want to tell this to the team. 
when's the right opportunity to share this with the team? And when we're huffing and puffing at the end of practice and we got to get to the lift, when's the, this is it. This is the formal. This is the forum for us to share. And the number of aha moments that we've had in there have been amazing, whether it's guys who are really shy or introverted who stood up and spoke and expressed themselves, or just making those connections that maybe guys are having individually, but I'm just not courageous enough to say in front of the team, but boy, coach Tiffany said, it's my turn, my family, we got to talk. He's given me a platform here to share my ideas with the team, even though I'm not a captain. And we've gone through some really cool books too. So what I really knew it was there the buy-in was there, Justin, was the second book was brought to us by a captain, Mm. Scott Hooper. He brought 50 copies. He showed up. He came, he came that second, that spring of 2018 started handing everyone out their books and it was the gates of fire by Stephen Pressfield, which is based on it's the battle of Thermopylae, the movie 300 popularized all this. And it's, we're actually, my goal is to create as to have eight or nine really good books. We've gotten there. So we're actually doing gates of fire for the second time now, but everyone's gone. Everyone's new because that was five years ago. And, and so it's really cool. So, so some of the books are like that, where it's more of a novel and the, it's not tailor-made to be like chapter two, chapter, you got to d- dive a little deeper into it. But we did another great book like that, The Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Brown. That book was phenomenal. One of the best books ever written, in my opinion. And uh, you talk about the 1930s, the Depression era, the University of Washington crew team, Joe Ranch, his rise, along with the backdrop of the militarization of Nazi Germany and just incredibly powerful story, really well written. And so we've gone through some great books. Bob Rotella is a really fantastic sports psychologist, How Champions Think is a book that we've used. Dom Starja, one of his book. I hope you'll be very happy. The Obstacles Away, uh, Stoicism by Ryan Holiday. That was a really great book. Those, that one was really easy for the guys because those chapters are about six pages long. And so there, fellas, chapter 28 this week. Uh, they didn't have a whole lot of reading to get caught yeah. up and be ready for that. I know they got, they're taking 12 to 15 credits here too. Yeah. They got some other uh, academic duties on their plate, but it's been incredibly powerful. It's usually conversations. We've had some skits performed by some families, uh, some, some creativity. Uh, sometimes we bring guest speakers. You always see like Nick Saban's got his incredible guest speakers. This is the opportunity. Oh, come to Cultural Thursday. Yeah. All right, fellas, we're not doing a chapter this week. Boom, we got a former Navy SEAL coming in and talk to us, Jim Smith. Awesome. Right. And, and so it's a natural, sometimes a cool video. We've had some really cool 10 to 15 minute videos. And then George Floyd is murdered by a Minnesota police officer. Perfect opportunity for us to talk about it. Cultural Thursday. Now that was during COVID, but after COVID, we all came back together. It was another opportunity for us to continue the conversation about race in America. Yeah. So it's something that's been tremendously valuable. And, and when I was a younger head coach, definitely assistant, never, ever thought we'd be doing anything like this. Yeah, no, I'm just captivated listening to the whole thing. And I got five or six book suggestions that read a couple of them, but it's awesome. And to figure out how to implement that the way we can here. I'm curious, given the, as you said, the success of the athletic department there. And heck, even at your earlier stops, what you've learned watching other disciplines, other coaches that are not lacrosse specific that you've been able to appropriate, borrow, steal, and uh, start using on your own based on observing it in a different space. I don't think we traditionally seek outside of our tunnel vision of sport, but I think there's a lot to be gleaned there. So I'm wondering based on who you're surrounded with, what you've been able to steal from sports that aren't lacrosse and apply to your sport. Sure. That's a great question. And you're right. None of us do it enough. Some, I shouldn't say not. There are a few. There's some people who do a great job of reaching out to people within their sport, outside their sport, always knowing that 
Life is about continually growing and learning. One huge advantage is Tony Bennett, the men's basketball coach here and his success. The guys won five ACC regular season titles in the last 11 years. Duke and North Carolina in our conference, along with a whole bunch of other really good teams. Yet He's won five regular season titles with a conference that's 15 teams deep. So he's allowed us to come over to practice. Probably only get there like twice a year up to be to admit to you. Every time I go, I come away with a drill. And the biggest thing for me is his defense, the pack line defense that started with his father and now Tony has taken it to a next level. It's fantastic. And to watch him implement that defense and put it in to the big picture, it's helped me. And now on our practice field, we have certain lines we use that help define where you deal aggressively with picks and mm-hmm. where you're getting through softly with pick and how we're treating a dodge, how aggressive we are with our slide schemes, certain areas of the court, certain areas of the field for our perspective. So that's been really advantageous. Steve Swanson, a women's soccer coach, and he's been tremendously successful here. Hasn't won the national championship yet, but be one of those trivia questions. Who's the most successful guy never to win a national championship? Let's say hopefully he gets one. He's still got time. He's got another 10 years, hopefully here coaching. He and him work, listening to him, talking with him in the hallway. Sometimes those water fountain conversations just blindside you, right? You were just going to go to the bathroom or get a drink of water. And all of a sudden, like a gem just comes out of nowhere, a golden nugget. But for him, the developmental piece, how they really focus on developing their women. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've got all the gadgets. They've got the drones. They got the GPS wearable technology. They are doing a fantastic job to developing their talent, mm-hmm. which is really critical. One to get to say in a recruiting process, I'm going to get the m- most out of you. You're going to get the most out of this experience possible. Um, and two, it's player focused, which is what this should all be about. Mm-hmm. You know, developing people and making sure they get the greatest version of themselves. It's funny. You probably don't remember this. I still remember a conversation you and I had when you were coaching here where you were asking me these very pointed basketball offense questions for the purpose of doing something with it with lacrosse. And it was like, hey, what are you guys doing over here with this? What is this? And I'm like, well, coach, why do you care? Well, look, lacrosse very similar. We're going to be able to use this. I was like, okay, cool. And that was 30 years ago and I'm a 17, 18 year old and you're a coach and it still sticks with me. Those conversations. Gosh, you got me smiling. I do not, don't remember that conversation, but it's, I appreciate you bringing that up. It's been fun. You know, what's interesting too. I think a lot of coaches, I I like to ask him, okay, so when you're watching a sport, maybe not your own sport, this example of me, would be basketball. When I'm watching a basketball game, Am I watching it from an offensive perspective or a defensive? How do I defend that offensive perspective? Mm-hmm. And I just naturally end up being a defensive guy. I'm a defensive mm-hmm. coordinator. I watch other sports from a defensive perspective. It uh, probably was. I, I was like, I, I got to learn some offense here. Let me, yeah. let me talk to Justin Kleima on the like, <laughs> game. And, you know, it's funny it. you mentioned that because I find the same thing. Like I tend to worry about the offensive stuff and I'm always trying to figure out how do I get somebody on staff so I can ignore the defensive part and not have to worry about it anymore? And, uh, you know, it's when I've had those guys around, I will legitimately find myself like walking out of the gym while we're doing defensive installs and coming back after five, 10 minutes. And like, where'd you go? Oh, you had that. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting. I don't think we think enough about, Hey, this is where my tendency is and how yeah. am I covering my blind spot and how am I growing that aspect of the game that doesn't necessarily intrigue me as much? It's I'll say here in Mitya, here I'm 54 years old. I've had success in my coaching profession. And if you said, all right, let's talk some offense. 
I start, oh God, oh God, let me I think what are some good offensive sets? What are some good plays? You start, let's talk defense. I'm like, bam, let's go. Bring it on. It's I still like I yeah, my blind spot I cover with Sean Kerwin, I think is the best offensive coordinator in the game of lacrosse, certainly arguably in the top five. And he just he just thinks of the game in a very different way than I do. And so that you, you want to find that complimentary person. And we say that a lot in the workplace. Um, you don't want a bunch of like-minded thinkers. You want people with diversity of thought and think maybe just the opposite of you. Yeah. Sometimes it sucks because your meeting didn't last 10 minutes, it lasted an hour because you argued about things. But hopefully after a while, you, you came to a, a conclusion and you understood the opposite side. You understand what your enemy might be thinking. And then you're better prepared for tomorrow. Let's talk about that for a second, because I think often we talk about wanting dissenting opinion in the room, but then that becomes a little bit tricky to navigate. As you're reflecting back on your career and if you were going to start over and get into this thing, how do you go back into your assistant hat when you made the comment early, you're making suggestions versus decisions? And how do you navigate that delicate balance between wanting dissenting opinion, having a good discussion, possible argument, and at the same time, knowing where those lines are when you're the head coach or the assistant in regards to when do you stop pushing? I joked often that if you've ever watched A Few Good Men, there's no strenuously objecting. It's like you get your objection on the record, and unless it's the hill you're going to die on, like you're done and you move on. So how do you navigate (laughs) that? What suggestions do you have? It all starts with the one person who sets the tone, and it's the head coach. Are you empowering, okay, or are you looking for followers? If you're strict with your authority, you'll either get compliance or defiance, but you won't get excellence. You have to create a tone where other people's opinions matter, that they, or at least they, they feel comfortable enough to share a differing side. I've been in those environments where I felt intimidated. And a bit introverted. I'm not very introverted, but I think if I'm more on the introverted than extroverted, slightly, I'll just be quiet because some of us, it's, it's not worth the fighting. Whereas other people love the argument. They'll just say something just to be contrarian so that they, let's get this thing spicy here. And so for that person, maybe they want the antagonistic head coach who's not going to feel as empowering as, as providing as much empowerment. But for me in general, for most of the situations I've been in, if I felt like the head coach was open to different ideas, and then I was more willing to share and have those conversations and agree at the end of the day to, in a collegial sort of academic manner. So I really think it starts with that coach. And I think when I was a younger coach, I had loftier ideals than actual practicality where I think, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to listen to my assistants, but I got all these ideas I want to implement. And it's my team and it's my co- practice plan. I'm going to do the practice plan. And he wanted that. Yeah, maybe tomorrow I'll put that idea in it. It's like, whoa, Lars, you remember when you were assistant coach, especially in one position where I was felt to be inferior, I wasn't empowered. And I just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to die in that hill to steal your analogy there for this program. It's his program. Whereas I have other places I was like, this is my defense. This is completely my thing. You got a hundred percent plus a little something extra. And, um, and so I just think it's really critical. Are you making it collaborative? Now, some people don't want to be empowered. I get that, but that's, they're usually a little lower on the rungs of the corporate ladder. I say corporate quotes, yeah. but the people who really care, the people you're hiring, your assistants to be in your position, your head coaches, they want that voice. They want to be able to make them feel empowered. And that's the biggest thing. 
Well, and it goes to growing your coaches as well. I talk often with Coop. It's I'm bringing you into a lot of this stuff because in the event I drop dead, you got to be able to do this stuff. And that's an extreme analogy, but it's like, how are you preparing the people to replace you? How are you helping them grow so that they can everybody, nobody's ready when you slide over, but to the extent that we can get them ready, right? How are we growing the people that we have been tasked with leading to make sure that they are ready when their name is called? Yeah, you're right. Because some people are fantastic teachers and then they get put into the assistant principal role. Oh boy. They weren't prepared for it. Or maybe they didn't really want it. It looked mm -hmm. like a nice pay raise, status symbol, people patted on the back. And all of a sudden they're like, I miss the kids. Mm -hmm. And this isn't my forte. So if you're going to move them into that new role, you're going to move the assistant coach, to the head coach, are they prepared? You're right. And it, and that's a critical piece. Of course, then there's the other side of it. The guy really wants to be a head coach no matter what. And he's going to take that job no matter what. And But who's going to give him that first job? Who's going to give him that chance, that experience? And all of us had to have somebody give us that first chance. <laughs> and it's interesting. I think going along the way for those assistant coaches out there, it's not the worst thing to have it all planned out. What's your first day in the head, as a head coach look like? What's your first week, first month, first year? What are the objectives of those days? So you don't have to get too detailed. It's a little more philosophical. You could be saying, hey, the first week, I'm going to have a phone conversation or a text with every person on the team. The first month, I'm going to have at least one or two Zoom meetings with the administrator, whatever it is. Just show that you've thought through it, that you're planned. So when you're trying to get that job, you can show them these documents, your statements, and that you've, even though you've never been a head coach, you've been thinking about it, that you've been planning for it. Now, as a head coach, maybe we can prepare our assistant coaches better for that. And again, that sense of empowerment, making them have that ownership so that they do care if the building burns because this is part of their program too. Let me ask this question, which could be a little bit loaded depending on how you want to answer it. But if you had all the knowledge that you have today, but you were able to go back in the DeLorean to when you were younger, and opportunities were starting to present themselves for being a head coach, what would be the things you would consider before choosing one place over another, so to speak, right? Like you mentioned, there are some people who are just going to take it regardless, and there are others that are going to be a little bit more selective, but what are the things that you think people considering those moves really need to take into consideration before they dive in? head first. Sure. And um, I'm stealing a little bit about this. I just was at this incredible retreat and I talked to a fantastic coach, but he put it really succinctly to answer your question, time, control, and resources. Do I have time to do this job right? Are you going to give me enough time? Or after two years of failure, am I gone? Are you going to give me enough time? Do I have enough control in decision-making, whether it's decision-making of the personnel that we're able to bring in, retain, cut, reduce the size of the roster, increase the size of the roster? How much control do I have if it's professional and the budget? And then resources. What are the resources that are allocated to me so I can do this job right? So those are the, the big three to hit when I really, when I think about that in terms of being a young head coach or preparing to become a young head coach, the time do I have control and the resources? Now, I also would shake that person as I was referring to earlier and make sure the opportunity you have in front of you to affect people's lives. The other thing I would do, and this is more of a, the current state of affairs, you're an athletic director, you face the pressure that comes down to you if there's been a discipline issue. That pressure then transfers to the coach. 
This is much more so at the collegiate level, I feel, but you're still dealing with as well. I would tell coaches, you want to be tough on crime. You want to be strong and clear with your team rules or standards. If you don't like rules, then come up with guidelines or standards, but make sure it's crystal clear. So your AD, Mr. Climo, can be clear when an infraction occurs, what the consequence will be. Therefore, the angry parents or the angry board members or all that, nope, this is, we're just following our protocols. Our team rules were vetted by the administration. The coach doesn't waver, all right? And just be tough on crime. And again, I would nudge him to be, even if you're not comfortable with it. And again, I'm a brown guy, you know, uber liberal, maybe not quite as Berkeley, but pretty close. And uh, I want guys to discover their own path, make some mistakes along the way. But in this day and age, there's a lot less tolerance for such. And so I've had to change. And I think other people, you will do yourself so much justice. You'll have less heartaches. You'll have a happier wife at home. My first couple of years at UVA, when we were cut, cutting guys who just weren't doing the right things, there were those Sunday morning or Monday morning phone calls about the screw-ups. Um, there's the, uh, the athletic director, Craig Littlepage, Lars, you got another incident here. And my wife's like, maybe we shouldn't have bought, maybe we should have rented. And I wonder if they're going to the next job. <laughs> and it's just like, if you're crystal clear and we're going to be really tough on crime, you, and they still violate, you remove the person if they're not someone that can change mm-hmm. and you move on. Right. And it's clear what yeah. your program represents. And in the long run, even though you lose a great player here and there, you'll be better. You'll be much better off. How do you feel? And this can be shorter if you need it to be, but about the idea of being a mission appropriate fit as a coach for the institution you're at. And I asked this in regards to me being an alum of the school, going to Davis, working there, then going to a public school for a while, then all boys Catholic, and then coming back. And I say this all the time, like when I returned to Stevenson, I wasn't a mission appropriate fit as a coach for this (laughs) place. And I had to learn how to continue to coach in the way in which I wanted to, but also within the mission and vision of the school. What are your thoughts on that when people are evaluating jobs or when they're currently in a job and maybe it's not going the way that they want it? Yeah, I got so many ways to go with this. That's a really good question. So when the alum gets hired, it just, that alum will have a better insight than anyone outside of the alumni group of what the vibe is, what the culture is, what's really important. You know, you got all the nice mission statements, but how the school really operates there's a huge advantage there. There's always a but, right? Georgetown hires Patrick Ewing to be a men's basketball coach. You know, what happens if things don't go well? And now, but that's, that really wasn't part of your question. So I'm going off on a tangent there, but I remember thinking about that when I was at Brown, like here I am at Brown, the institution that probably better than any other in the world because of its open curriculum, no gen ed requirements, take every class pass fail, literally every class pass fail if you want to, We're going to celebrate the individual, no structure, no restrictions. And yet I'm a lacrosse coach trying to build a team to get 38 men to just sacrifice their own personal interests and personal goals for the unity of the team. So different from what the universities probably (laughs) do, but maybe the best thing. So the individual gets both when they go to Brown University and then play for an athletic team. You know, the Navy coach, Coach Amplo, before him was Richie Mead and Rick Soul. Richie Mead, he wasn't a Navy guy in his younger years. He loved the Navy. He loves the Navy. He loves his guys. He loves hearing the stories. And 
he went, loves wearing the hats with the scrambled eggs and, and, and it's, he was all in on being a Navy guy, but, and that was great. And I think he built some really great relationships there. The current head coach, Joe Amplo doesn't nearly need to embrace it as much as that. And he can still be a great head lacrosse coach there. So it's interesting. And I really buy into it because I was the coach of a alma mater. Now I'm a head coach for a school where I'm not the alma mater. And someday I won't be the coach here, but let's say you're an alum of UVA. You'll always be an alum of UVA. This is your alma mater no matter what. This may not be my job 10 years from now or 15 years from now. And so there is a, there's that disconnect, whereas I'll always be a Brown guy, but so I'm not really giving you, a, I'm not resolving if, to an answer here on this question, Justin, I think, but it's a, it's something I do think about is, do you, do, is there a fit? And maybe that's what you were ultimately asking is when you're looking at the job, University of Oklahoma or Pacific Grove AD right. or Carmel AD versus RLS AD, does, is there, is it important that there's something guttural and cultural with deep within you that there's a fit with this? That does matter. It really does help when you've got that fit. But then there's sometimes that maybe having a bit of a distance and, but having the support. And again, those three things, um, do you have the time, do you have the control and do you have the resources to do your job right? And with the people who respect you and a boss that gives you the opportunity to go out there and be empowered, then maybe that's all you need. So I, yeah, I don't, and, really and I don't disagree. A, a answer. I don't, I think the answer is great because I think you gave additional perspective for people to think about. And for me, it's when you're, in my case, 24, getting your first head coaching job, it, you know, hey, I'll take it. I don't need to know a ton about it. I'll figure it out. But as an older fella, I would probably be a lot more selective because, hey, is that the right fit for me in who I am at this point in my life and what I bring to the table? Does it mesh with the leadership? Does it mesh with the culture of the school? And I think sometimes when we're young and hungry, we don't even think about that. So I think your answer does serve. If, if I could maybe wrap it up one other way, just it, it's the people. You may be anti-military and West Point's calling, but if it's if the people who you're going to be working with, the AD or whoever it is, the dean of the English department, whatever, if you connect with them, if you trust them, if there's a relationship there that you really want to explore and dive into, then that's what it matters. I talked to assistant guys who are looking to get into lacrosse or an assistant coach who's thinking about changing jobs. This job pays a little bit more and this job's a little bit better of a lacrosse program. I'm like, that's fine. Who are you going to work for? Who are you going to work with? This is your, you're the apprentice blacksmith. That's the master blacksmith. We don't necessarily have master's programs in coaching. Yeah, I see a few advertised in some online sources, but let's say for real, for most right. of us, you learn from your head coach or the people you coach with. Put yourself in the best situation possible to find out who the best coaches are, find out who the best directors are and get in their system and work for them. That to me is the most important thing, whether you're putting Coca-Cola or Pepsi on your shirt, who you're working with. Yep, no, absolutely. And I think that's a huge thing. Like who are you surrounding yourself with that you are learning from? And I think exactly. that's a great way to wrap that piece up. And then we'll go one more here. This is something I've been asking lately in to the growth mindset piece that you brought up earlier. And I heard this on another show that Dave Stahoviak runs called Coaching for Leaders. But the question is, what have you most recently changed your mind on? And usually I attach it to coaching, but because you are into many other things, I'm curious in general, what is the most recent thing you've changed your mind on? I used to be over here and now I'm over here and here's why. It's a very deliberate, intentional shift in your thinking. Oh boy. Um, 
Let's see. Well, I'm still a vegetarian. I got to RLS in September of 1990 and I was eating meat and I left in 94, not eating meat. And that's still 30 years later. So it's definitely not that one. <laughs> definitely not that one. Golly. I know I got to get deep here. Got to think. All I can think are stupid little things. I discovered. That's Netflix. fine. Let's start with those. Start with one I of those. I discovered Netflix. You ever heard of this thing called Netflix? COVID happened. And all of a sudden, <laughs> Absolutely. Like Netflix. Yep. I always wonder why my assistant coaches were talking about television shows. I was thinking like NBC, CBS television shows. They're like, would you stop talking about television? Let's get back to work here. Let's talk about the man up and uh, oh, COVID. Wow. Amazing. Television. Didn't know it could be so great. See, there's one. My little plug for Vikings Valhalla. Bam. Let's see here. What have I changed? Think about things that I've changed over time as I talk about being much more collaborative with my captains, with my men in terms of decision-making. As I've talked, adjusting myself, being tougher on crime than being strict. Fine. <laughs> But I don't care. As people get older, they don't care much, no, much about it. You don't care anymore. That's awesome. <laughs> I don't care about Hey, whatever makes you happy. <laughs> I did not see it going there, but that's awesome answer. I appreciate that, Coach. And I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. I'm sure you got other things going on, but it's great having you on. Great talking to you and wish you well. Yeah, this is fun. A little flashback then. Those are four great years on the Central Coast. Those are four great years at RLS. Great people. All right. We'll be talking soon. Take care. All right. This podcast was also brought to you by teachhoops.com. As coaches, our inboxes will get flooded with noise on how to make your program better. Teachhoops.com will get you focused on what needs to get done. One thing you've heard from these podcasts is no matter the experience, you got to keep pushing yourself to be better. Coach Steve Collins will help you direct that noise. He is there to help you. He has the credentials as a coach, and he's never turned down a Teach Hoops member. Sign up for a plan at teachhoops.com and mention us at checkout. This site is here simply to help you be better. Take advantage and see you on the court. Remember, go to teachhoops.com. Drink Element is a healthy alternative to sugary electrolyte drinks. Each grab-and-go stick pack replaces essential electrolytes with no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, or any other junk. Element is thrilled be releasing a new limited time flavor this November, Element Milk Chocolate. I drink Element every day to support my workouts and being on the court and in the classroom. As a member of our community, Element has a special offer for you. Claim your free Element sample pack. You only cover the cost of shipping. Get yours today at drinkelement, that's L-M-N-T, dot com slash contacts.